Well, good afternoon and welcome to Round the Table with Christian Concern. Uh, the question we're asking today is, is assisted suicide compassionate? Uh, subject that's been in the news recently and uh, an issue that's coming back to the fore um, in the public sphere. I'm very pleased to have um, some fantastic guests today. Uh, Chief Executive of Care Not Killing, Gordon McDonald, um, is here with us. Welcome to you, Gordon. Nice to see you. Um, good and, afternoon, Tim. Uh, we've also got Merv and Nikki Kenwood, who are campaigners of old on this issue uh, with a group called the Distant Voices, um, and been campaigning for many years on this issue, haven't you? I think, um, Nikki yeah. and Merv. It's great yeah. to have you uh, with us as well. Um, so, Gordon, look, I'm going to come to you first on this. Um, can you first of all explain, because there's some confusion that people have about the difference between assisted suicide and euthanasia and then perhaps you'd like to go on to what's happened in the news most recently about this yeah sure um, so assisted suicide is when a doctor um, would write a prescription for a lethal dose of barbiturates for example um, which would then be given to the patient who would then self-administer those um, to end their own life um, euthanasia on the other hand is where the doctor themselves um, would administer the lethal dose of medication and actively bring the patient's life to an end. So uh, it's really to do with, it's not to do with the intent. The intent is to end the life of the patient, but it's about how it is administered. In terms of the current situation um, at Westminster um, and also in, in Scotland around the UK, um, we have had a very active campaign um, being pushed for legalisation of assisted suicide. We've actually seen some uh, campaigners wanting the law to go further than assisted suicide and to include euthanasia. Um, and we have now a bill which has been proposed in Parliament and in the recent private members ballot in the House of Lords came in the seventh position. So it's got a very high chance of being seriously considered in the next year. And that's a bill, is that, is that Baroness Beecham's bill? And is that, that for assisted suicide, is it? That's a, it's called the assisted dying bill, which is a euthanasia. Um, and assisted dying can actually mean either assisted suicide or euthanasia. Um, but the bill itself does relate to assisted suicide for those who have a terminal illness and a prognosis of six months or less to live. Right. Okay. So uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. And by the way, if you're watching live, um, you know, do ask questions because we've got the experts here on this whole subject about assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, and we'd be love to engage with your questions and, uh, and answer them um, with you and pose them to the experts here. So um, Merv and Nikki, you've been campaigning on this. What got you passionate and interested in this subject? Um, well, for myself, uh, about 30 years ago, I was um, 37, and um, I caught a sort of flu. Uh, that, that's how it usually starts. And um, overnight, um, I, I gradually became more and more paralysed. I didn't realise how bad it was at first. I went to the doctor twice. And he said, you've got flu. Um, anyway, on uh, the third day, as it were, um, 
I woke up to discover that I couldn't walk. Now, before this time, I was working at that point as a therapist in a very large psychiatric hospital. And I've been a, th a community theatre director. So just to put you in the picture, I was very used to using my body with, my, mm. with patients. And, you know, I, I suppose I was very active. Um, so on that day, I was rushed off to hospital eventually. By tea time, um, I was almost completely paralysed. And what followed after that was, so I couldn't speak. I couldn't move at all. For quite a while, only one of my eyes worked. So people always put me in the papers as the woman who had one eye that worked. Um, you know, some sort of cyclops. Anyway, so uh, and at one point I went deaf as well because I cried and it filled my ears and nobody knew it was stopping me hearing. And um, I was very, very frightened. But I want to say to you that before this, I might, I probably would have said, if anything like this happens to me, I don't want to live. Right. This is what I hear yeah. all the time now. This is what the Times put in the paper from the man they're using to say, you could be like this. Mm. Or what my doctor said as for me as an example, you don't want to end up like her, which makes you feel very positive about yourself. Huh. Um, yeah. Um what what transpired in intensive care, and there's a there's a great deal of pain with Gian Barry because any um your autonomic nerves carry on working, so my liver and my heart worked, but more or less, and my brain worked really fast all the time, but anything else stops working. So um, I, I was left in that condition, so it means that you have to be moved. I couldn't bear to be touched, and I couldn't bear to be touched for well over a year because I had no resistance in my skin. So if you touched me, it was it was just really awful. So it would take six nurses to turn me over. Uh, now, there were some nurses who were uh, very, very kind, very loving. And in that situation, you really do feel that sort of love and you really do need it. But what I discovered, which was odd having worked um, I've worked in prisons and all over the place. I've worked with murderers, but I didn't really know. Um, one of the staff, a guy called Gary, who now runs an intensive care unit, um, liked to hurt people. And he attacked myself and two other people. The police worked on it for a year, but in this day and age, and people should remember this, it's become more and more difficult to pin people down. But what people like him managed to do is they managed to send out sort of tentacles to the rest of the staff to say, you don't need to care. And it was very noticeable who ignored it. And, and I needed people with me 
all the time. Because I was covered in slobber all the time. My tongue swelled up and completely filled my mouth. Because when your muscles don't work, so um, Merv, how were you coping with this at the time? Um, mm -hmm. It's probably going to sound quite strange, this, but there's a there's a, so so as Nick has said, she she went into intensive care and uh, she was very quickly put onto a ventilator, where she languished for mm, three four months. She was on a ventilator, and and. It's, it's, a, it's a strange sort of feeling because once you've got past that sort of shock of the person being in hospital, there's a sort of strange, this is going to sound absolutely bonkers, an almost celebrity status that is attached to having somebody in intensive care because everybody comes to you and says, how's Nikki? How's she doing? What's happening? Is she moving? And it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's, it's quite a strange mix of emotion between this desperate sense of sadness and fear about what is happening to Nick and also this sort of strange sense of my life became filled with questions about how Nicky was. But as, as, as the days wore on into weeks and then into months, what became really apparent was was that when I was leaving Nick, I would go home at 10 o'clock, 10 p.m., was this real sense of fear that I had about how Nick was going to be treated. And it was, it was, um, it was a strange feeling because when I knew that Nikki had a really good nurse who was going to be looking after her overnight, I had a real sense of well-being and I had a sense of Nikki's going to be okay. But when she had a, a nurse, um, you know, for example, the person that she's mentioned looking after her, I'd have an absolute sense of dread about how she was going to be. And I'd find myself ringing up and checking in the morning and, and almost making sure that, you know, she was still there, really. I never quite knew if she was going to be okay. And I think at the same time, um, if, if, if Nikki had, if someone had said to me at the time, well, will will what would nikki like to happen now because she was such a physical person because mm. she was such a vibrant person um is a vibrant person um I, I think that that i might have said i'm not really sure how nick would want to continue whether she'd want to continue the only thing that really interfered with that mindset was the fact that we had alfie our yeah. son who was one year old and and I suppose he was he was that anchor that said, well, whatever happens, we've got to make sure that she lives because Alf is going to need a mum. And, and so he was that anchor. But it was a it was a terrifying time. And I would uh, just very quickly, I would go into the hospital sometimes and I would discover Nick with lots and lots of bruises on her chest and stuff. And I would inquire as to why that was the case. And it sort of slowly materialised that there were um, one person in particular, but there was a little group of nurses that really just weren't looking after Nikki properly. And I think that was the first real sense that, um, you know, maybe hospital, uh, that particular section of the hospital wasn't the safest place to be. Now, having said that, I would hastily say that when Nikki went onto the ward, when Nikki went onto the ward um, uh, on, on month five, uh, she was treated with compassion, love, humour, um, but the ward was run 
by a really by a really really good um, sister, and um, and that made all the difference. It was very much about who was running the show. So how does this? Um, no, here you are now, thirty years on. Yes, and and obviously, you know, you survived and and were able to be that mother and everything, you know, um, and stuff. And um, but how does this relate to assisted suicide in your mind? Well, um, for me, yeah, yeah, lying there, I had a huge sense of that my spirit wasn't dying. Um, and that I, I thought, well, if this is all there is, if I don't get better, I still want to be alive. And it came as a big surprise to me that I could feel like that. I wanted to be alive for my son, Alfie. Um, I, missed, I missed him terribly. I actually had to stop thinking about him because it was hurting me so much. Um, and I thought, that's what drove me on plus the fact one day a rather nice guy um called alan came over and said i'm the hospital chaplain i don't know how he knew he said i don't know if you're a christian but can i speak to you and he came to see me a lot and we became good friends and um on my bad days but i remember one day saying to him you can go away and take your friend with him i've had enough today and my mum said you shouldn't say that and alan said it's okay he can take it and she knows that i said just go away all of you this is where, this is where i was on the board when they discovered that i could speak <laughs> you know but um i i had witnessed terrible terrible things in that unit I mean, a, a lovely Dutch nurse who sobbed by my bed and said, they won't let me help you. And sometimes I thought, wow. am I imagining all this? Mm. And this lady who was a cleaner, she used to come by the bed and she used to whisper in my ear when, when they cleared my ears out, um, I know what they're doing to you but I can't stop them. And I thought, this is just unbelievable. One night, I'll tell you very quickly, an elderly gentleman came in. Now, I do understand that people going into intensive care, the probability is they might die. He was a very old man. He, sat, he sounded old, gentleman called Harry. And the, the guy and his sort of sidekick, because they always have followers, these people. Mm. was um, he was doing something to him and he started off and I couldn't see it you see because I couldn't move so I, I was just hearing him saying don't hurt me come on lad don't hurt me by about half an hour he caught this hour the gentleman was crying and he was begging he was begging that he would stop hurting him and um this particular nurse said nothing. He didn't speak to him. And I was just lying there thinking, God, please just get him away from him. The next day, and a very sweet nurse, because of course there were some lovely people there, came to me and said, there's a lot of fuss about Harry because he shouldn't have died. And I thought, 
he didn't make it then and it was it was a nightmare within a nightmare but i had an enormous change of mind but we need people to be safe um baroness experience, you would have you would have been in favor of assisted suicide i don't know if i've given it much thought because right in my work i've worked with disabled people yeah, you know, I'm, I'm saying that rather stupidly, but yeah, I and I'd, I'd say this was. Well, you would have thought I wouldn't have wanted to. You said this, didn't you? I wouldn't want to live like this. Yeah, and yeah. and I'll tell you something else. I think that if I, I started to blink in my right eye, and I started to, at which point Merv got dyslexia, and uh, I started to spell out words, and um, it, we had a little booklet that she kept. I remember kept running all the letters into each other. And I remember one night he said, uh, he, got, he kept saying, you can't, you can't, but you can't believe it. And all of a sudden he said, you can't breathe. <laughs> and I thought, God, I could be dead now. But I, I have a very strong feeling that my family around me, and it happens with game barriers, that's what I had. The, the machine gets turned off because it's it's still misdiagnosed. If they asked my family, would you want to live? Which, with euthanasia, knowing the prognosis that I would end up in a wheelchair, I think a lot of people who knew me would have said, you won't want to live like this. You know, but I have friends who slept on the floor because they knew what was going on and they wouldn't leave me, which I shall never forget. I owe them a great deal. Um, you know, but so, so that was a situation I found myself in. But I've looked at this with um, Adrian Trelaw, the psychiatrist, and I'm a firm believer that some of these people are psychopaths and they do spread their tentacles out. And I think that what the hospitals need to do when they interview people, they've got to look out for people as a drama therapist, you work on interjection. The idea that when you look at people, you you see and feel, you probably know this, forgive me, their weakness as you see it. Mm. And it creates weakness in you. And for the likes of Beverly Allett, who killed the children. Um, they can't bet they can't bear it mm -hmm. and they want to get rid of what's in front of them mm -hmm. and until we reach the point where we say we need to make sure that people that everything's in place so that people can go and say i'm worried about how he works i'm worried about this i'm not coping mm -hmm. it won't stop and, and so your your point is that, then that really had had assisted suicide been legalized, I wouldn't be here. You would have never been the mother that you then became. And and you know, you'd have never they you wouldn't would, be here now. Yeah. They would say now, I think, how much is it going to cost? Because it costs thousands to keep me in hospital. Yeah. What will she contribute to society? And I noticed there was a question about that. What will she contribute to society afterwards? Mm. How much is she going to cost afterwards? Mm. Is it worth it? You know, I've had people come to me. A youth worker came to me 
when I was working with a young man who's got cerebral palsy and we just done a talk. And in front of him, she said, the problem is, Nikki, if I were you, I'd rather be dead. And I said, you know, Alex is about 23. I said, Alex is sitting by me. And he just looked at me and sort of shook his head. He said, well, I don't care. I'd rather be dead. And I thought, and you're a youth worker. People feel it's okay to have this attitude, especially in a climate where money is God. And how much does everything cost? My brother said to Merv, I, I wouldn't have stayed if I were you. Yeah, yeah. And then I've had to say, that's your, that's your sister we're talking about. Can I, can I add something as well? Because yeah, I think that, that um, there, was a, there was also a moment, I think that that, that cemented that sense of, for, for, for us both, that maybe hospitals weren't always the safest places they could be. But again, we would hasten to say that Nikki's time on the ward was fantastic and she was well supported. I'm still really friends important to say that. But I think there was a moment about... Oh, uh, I think it was 2009, and um, Anthony Gormley uh, had secured the fourth plinth on Trafalgar Square for a project, and um, and Nikki was uh, uh, lucky enough to win a place on the fourth plinth. And the idea was that you'd have one hour on the fourth plinth to talk about anything that you wanted to, and. Um, so so um, uh, Nikki had, had won this place and there was a lot of debate about, well, what should she bring to the table? You know, what should she tell the nation? And um, and it was interesting because people said, oh, don't talk about disability. You know, you know, it's depressing. It's rubbish. Um, but uh, but Nikki actually decided uh, after doing some research, she discovered um, a really, really important uh, piece of work by MENCAP called Death by Indifference. Mm -hmm. And it was a report into how learning disabled people were going into hospital and not coming out because decisions were being made that their lives were considered to be not worth living. And they have been doing that during the pandemic. And so Nikki, Nikki um, read about this. She spoke to this uh, this this particular young lady mm -hmm. called Daisy Healy, who who had to been part of the death by indifference. So there's a picture of Daisy now, and um she she talked to her mom at great length and had a lot of very painful discussions and long story short she presented the story of daisy healy on the fourth film and nikki yes can i just say quickly daisy went into hospital with some sort of fungal infection in her tooth and uh, the staff um she became very ill with it. I, I assume it was some sort of septicemia, but she became very ill because the staff decided that they wouldn't treat her. So she got worse and worse. She was sent home after two weeks. Um, I think that's a picture of her at home, actually. She was nine. She went to a special school, and gradually her mum, Amanda, and her dad, Mark, she lived in a shop where they sold uh, skateboards. Everybody knew where she lived. Uh, she was loved, very, very loved. And it was decided that they would leave her. And she got worse and worse until her mum, this is cutting a very long story short, in desperation insisted that they send her to a different hospital where they gave her 
that artificial nutrition hydration they gave her hydration but it was too late and she bled to death and her mom eventually went to the court of human rights to prove that that she should, shouldn't have died and it was found that she shouldn't have died and the staff said that their their response was we underestimated the quality of her life now as her mum left the hospital the day she died a doctor stopped her and said it was all very terrible she said Mandy said to me, Amanda said to me, I can't forget. This is terrible, he said. This is almost like losing a child. Almost. And she was left with that. She couldn't get anybody to take it seriously, the police or anybody. But in the end, the Ombudsman and the Human Rights Court found in her favour. But nobody was sacked. Nobody went to prison. Nobody really said anything. She lived down the road from the hospital. How she didn't go in there and do something? I don't know. I just admire her restraint. But so, they, so they, um, no. listen, um, Gordon. Okay. I can now move on to Gordon a little bit. Um, that's a heartbreaking story, right? Mm. But there are many more stories like that in countries where euthanasia and assisted suicide are legal, are there not? Well, I think, I mean, the first thing I would say is that most doctors and nurses are very caring people, obviously, and, and do a great job. And I mean, I've got close relatives who are, who are medics as well. Um, but my mother, actually, when she was a nurse and was on a geriatric ward and ultimately ended up having to complain about the way the patients were being treated by the sister on the ward. So there are these bad apples in every system. Um, so, you know, this highlights what the danger is, isn't it? That if you change the law, um, and we've seen this in the Netherlands in particular, where where um, the death rates from induced deaths are going up, um, you, you know, over time, um, you, what you create is a medical culture where uh, the view is that the appropriate response to suffering or to very difficult cases is to end the life of the patient either um, through assisting suicide in places like Oregon um, or in places like the Netherlands, as I say, through euthanasia or even through continuous deep sedation until death. And the, the, the thing which is not known about the Netherlands is it's not just the, the euthanasia deaths, which are now about 4.5% of all deaths, uh, about 6,500 a year. Um, it's also the deaths where essentially the doctors and the nurses and the healthcare team take the, the view um, that they should just withdraw nutrition and hydration and sedate the patient and allow the patient to die. And that, that far um, outweighs the number of euthanasia deaths in that country. So the doctors are making a decision themselves, this life is not worth living. And yes, then, indeed, indeed. And then refusing to treat that person. Yeah, I mean... I, mean, they, they, I, read, they, I, I remember reading a story, and it affected my wife as well quite a lot, of a patient who'd been in a hospital in the Netherlands, I think it was, it might've been Belgium, and they were in a little bit of pain. And when the doctor would come around in the morning, they'd, they'd say, is there anything I can do for you? Well, I, uh, I'm in a little bit of pain, can you help? Oh no, we can't really do anything about that, but can give you a paternal injection if you'd like that to end it all. And yeah, no, I don't want that, right? Every day, the doctor would say, you know, I can't really do anything for you, but I could give you a terminal injection if you'd like that, right? 
mm. you know, eventually he got moved to a British hospital, managed to get that, and the doctors, you know, were able to treat the disease and he was fine, right? But that the mentality becomes like the, there's an easy way out of this. Just you know, we'll just give you an injection and then you're off. You know, it's awful. It's horrific, isn't it? Think about it. Yeah, and there have been cases from America where um, health insurance companies have said to patients with cancer. Uh, we can't afford to to or we won't fund your cancer treatment your chemotherapy or this drug that you want um but we will fund your your assisted suicide the barbara wagner um was a very prominent case in oregon and randy stroop as well um but i have a colleague um who is part of a group that i'm part of from the netherlands and he got involved in this campaign after his grandfather ended up in hospital uh, sorry it was in a care home and the the doctor essentially said he had a problem with his leg. Uh, the patient, his my friend's grandfather, had a problem with, with his leg. Um, the the doctor um, found out. They gave him antibiotics, I think, and then the doctor found out about it and said, "The next time this happens, call me first. So the next time it happened, they called him, and he, uh, the doctor, put him on uh, essentially a pathway to death, um, which was you know withdrawing nutrition, hydration, sedating him, and the other members of the family, other than his wife, who found out about this a few days later and by the time they found out and, and created a, uh, a row about it and and got the situation rectified it was too late and his grandfather died so that was what got him involved in this campaign against the legalization of uh, or against euthanasia and assisted suicide and you know that's that's the practice that's that's what people are experiencing in these jurisdictions and i can see that bruce bennett has put a comment on facebook here saying the problem with assisted suicide uh, it very quickly becomes euthanasia either by subtle or overt coercion or by budget controllers that's is that right gordon would you agree with that um i think it it, it depends on the jurisdiction perhaps uh, in terms of formal changes to the law we in canada for example there was a, a a court challenge which was the carter case which was brought about by a man who wanted assisted suicide the court ruling was was much broader than that and essentially forced the canadian government to legalize euthanasia initially they they limited it to people whose death was reasonably foreseeable although they didn't actually define what that meant in law um, but then just recently they've changed the law again in canada to remove the reasonably foreseeable um, criteria because there was another court case which said that that was unconstitutional um, and so what we see happen is we see the law gets expanded over time but we also see other things like for example we see increases in the number of deaths in every jurisdiction you see that whether it be switzerland which has an assisted suicide you, you've got some slides to show yes us that. indeed yeah um, Could you, so, um, talk us through some of those because the charts are quite um yeah sure. really. so this is this is a, a chart that compares four jurisdictions you can see the netherlands at the top there you can see the increases in euthanasia and assisted suicide deaths in the netherlands over time how it goes up um, as I say, it's over six and a half. It's about six, 6,300, I think it was last year or so, um, deaths in the Netherlands. Then you have Belgium, which is uh, is below that. It's it's about two and a half thousand deaths there currently. You can see how it's gone up in Belgium. There's just been a report published from the Belgium which says that um, people are being euthanized in Belgium who are not terminally ill or have irretrievable suffering, but are just elderly with lots of minor conditions. Um, and so because they have all these minor conditions, some doctors have been euthanizing people there um, for conditions which are not 
uh, in and of themselves serious. Um, then you have Switzerland, which has an assisted suicide law, and you can see how the numbers have gone up there. And then Oregon at the bottom. Now, you have to remember that Oregon is a much smaller population than some of these other jurisdictions. But if you look at the Oregon stats on their own, and there's another slide which shows that, then what you see is, is that in Oregon, the numbers of um, deaths have gone up. And last year, there was a huge jump. Can, up we, um, can we get the other slide up? Um, yeah, that's it. So you can see there with Oregon, you can see the, the number of prescriptions that are written have been increasing over time. And you can see how the number of deaths have been mm -hmm. going up too. And the reason Oregon is so relevant is because that is the, the model which Barron Why is prescriptions so. higher than deaths? So, well, this, this shows that many people um you know want the reassurance that they they can take their life when when they wish to but don't actually do so but that means that you end up with a situation where lots of these drugs are sitting about in the community and not used or sometimes people take the the drugs um, much later than they're legally entitled to so though people are meant to die within six months say uh, actually they end up taking the drugs two or three years down the line after they've been given them uh, and of course, they're taking them uns unsupervised in their home, unsupervised, not in any sort of medical context. So if things go wrong, which they sometimes do, uh, then people can end up in a worse situation than they were in before. Mm -hmm. So, and um, they normally um, sort of try and define this as like initially in law as like, you know, only when you've got six months to live or terminal illness mm -hmm. or something. But then the, what constitutes that definition ends up being expanded over time, doesn't it, Gordon? Um, it certainly can do, yes. And and that's what I think we've just seen happen in Canada. Um, although they didn't actually put in law six months, it was interpreted, um, uh, but the advice lawyers were giving was six months. That, 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 but that, of course, now has been struck down by the courts and changed by the, by the parliament over there. But we also see the same happening in Belgium and the Netherlands. It's supposed to be a narrow group of people to begin with, people who are terminally ill, people who, um, but because they have this term in unbearable suffering, that then gets interpreted in many different ways. And we see it gets expanded from people who are terminally ill to people who are chronically ill, from adults to children, from people who are mentally competent to people who are not mentally competent. And the, one of the latest- they, they, if, I, if I'm right, Gordon, they redefine it so that terminally ill means you would die without treatment. So then diabetes, for example, becomes yeah. classed as terminally ill because without some, um, what is it, insulin and, and other treatment, you would die. But of course you can live for many decades with diabetes, you know, so it's not, mm -hmm. not yeah. to the normal yeah. sense of things, is it? Mm -hmm. that's, that's what's happened in Oregon, that they, if, you, mm -hmm. if you refuse treatment, then you're deemed to be eligible for assisted suicide, yeah. Right. Uh, if you look at um, the Netherlands, and there is a slide on this, which this is one of the most disturbing things recently, um, is to do with people who are euthanized for psychiatric reasons alone. So in this country, if somebody's depressed and they're suicidal, um, or they've got anorexia, for example, then uh, it's not that slide, it's another one further on. But what, what we see is a huge effort to try and dissuade people from committing suicide and to treat their, their mental illness. But what's now happening in the Netherlands and has been happening since 2010 or 12 or so, is that there is a euthanasia clinic that actually euthanizes people who have, um, a, who, who have psychiatric illness. And you can see the numbers have increased by about 500% between 2012 and 2017. It's not a bar chart. The slide isn't a bar chart. It's just 
a list of stats. But there you go. That's the stats. It shows how how the rate has gone up in the Netherlands since they started this practice of euthanizing people who have solely got psychiatric conditions and don't have any physical illness at all. So they could be just very depressed. Yeah. Well. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, um, Mervyn, Nikki, what can we do? What What do you think we should do to try and uh, prevent this happening in the UK? What's your What do you think? I think one of the problems is uh, one, two people, other people have pointed this out. The language that's used. If you go and ask people for a poll, do you want to die in agony? They're bound to say no. Mm. But if you ask different questions, I've found, mm. if you say to them, right, if you go to hospital, do you mind if two or three people on your ward are going to be euthanized? Like the end, the end three beds closer to the door. They're going to be euthanized. How do you feel about what happens in Switzerland and, and other places? The death doctor calling on Fridays. You know, God, I hope he didn't go to the wrong house. Um, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of anomalies. You know, how do you feel about... When I've spoken to young people about this, there's a sort mm. of, well, they're old, so it doesn't matter. But if you say, have you not got grandparents? What if somebody was coming out of the house today? How would you feel about that? Mm. <laughs> the big question is, what is the world going to look like with this? because it will look very different and it will affect the way we function and what we do and i mean uh, you know what we're prepared to put up with but we're basically asking the wrong questions you know as gordon was saying there are clinics you can go to now that um it's in holland i don't know if you still got them they had six vw vans that went round picking up death stragglers and taking them to the clinics. You know, um, people need to be sure that they understand what will happen. And I mean, the, people the public, will feel pressured to die, is what you're saying, well, aren't it? They'll, yeah, um, you know, and they'll feel like they're a burden on the society or on the family or something else like that. And then, oh, even, very much so. Even I think the groundwork's all there. Yeah. You know, all yeah. this, you know, do not resuscitate. I think, um, Gordon, you've got a slide on the polling, have you? Yes, I do indeed, yeah, yeah. So what, what we did a few years ago, we did an opinion poll in which we, um, oh, this is the BMA poll results. It's not that slide. It's the infographic slide um, at the start of the presentation, sorry. Anyway, we did an opinion poll in which um, we put the main arguments against the legalization of assisted suicide or euthanasia to the public. Now, when you ask the simple question in a poll, um, you know, do, should people have the right to end their own lives? You generally get quite a high percentage saying yes, and that's what dignity and dying often quote. And often they, they ask very loaded questions and they don't use um, polling companies that are signed up to the best standards, basically, so they can, use, so they can choose questions which are leading questions. Anyway, when we put a question through uh, a polling company that is signed up to the, the best standards, um, we we put this question in. 73% people said in principle that they favoured legalising assisted suicide. But when we put the five strongest arguments against legalising assisted suicide about people feeling 
pressurized to end their life um, or the rise in cases in all those jurisdictions or the cost of um, palliative care versus the cost of assisted suicide, et cetera, or the fact that disability groups were all opposed um, or the fact that the, the, the main doctors groups were, were opposed or didn't, certainly didn't support a change in the law. What you see happen is that the support level for assisted suicide being legalized drops amongst the general public from 73% to 43%. Uh, and 43% opposing. So public opinion is not a guide to this issue in terms of an overwhelming support no. for it. It shows that public opinion is very fluid. And the same is true with political opinion, with politicians. When they consider the arguments, when they consider the issue, they generally come to the view that we shouldn't change the law because it's just not safe to do so. Mm. There's okay. also the issue of feeling a burden, of course, which you mentioned, and there's, there's another slide from Oregon there which if they, if they can put it up but what we've seen in oregon is we've seen an increase in the in the percentage of people having an assisted suicide death who have cited that the fear of being a burden is a, one of the main reasons for doing so so it's not just there is a high percentage in 2019 it was 59 percent who cited that reason it's the fact 59. that over time it has 59%. increased over time that's incredible 59 percent of those who are having assisted death say the main reason or a reason is being a burden on people yeah it's not the main reason but it's one of the main reasons one of the reasons yeah but but in 2920 it went down a little bit but you can see the trend over time is that it's gone up in terms yeah. of people saying that yeah and a question here from becca moffitt on youtube what would happen to doctors who refuse to carry out an assisted death or assisted suicide uh, I think it would it would depend on what the legislation says. Um, the World Medical Association is currently, I mean, the deadline's today, having a consultation on a new code of ethics, um, and uh, one of the one of the proposals is is that there would be essentially a, a duty to refer people on for an assisted suicide or euthanasia death. That actually is contrary to the to the World Medical Association's own policy. So it's somewhat ironic that their code of ethics consultation is contradictory to their own policy on that point. Um, but there is a danger, certainly in Canada, we've seen um, a duty to refer being imposed upon doctors uh, and in Belgium as well. In Belgium, we're seeing um, a duty being placed on care homes, which have, for example, a religious ethos um, that they cannot um, ban their staff from being involved in euthanasia deaths and they cannot deny access to the premises by doctors who are willing to conduct a euthanasia death. Same's happened in Canada where there was a rather prominent um, a case in Canada and British Columbia where a particular doctor who has addressed the Scottish Parliament and possibly the Westminster Parliament as well in the last couple of years, um, she went into a, an Orthodox Jewish nursing home and euthanized a patient despite the fact that the home had a policy of not having euthanasia deaths on the premises. And we've just seen a case of a, of a hospice in Canada, in British Columbia, that's essentially um, not going to be able to continue providing the service which it did because the British Columbia government said they were not willing to allow them to do so if they weren't willing to provide euthanasia deaths. So just um, in closing, Gordon, what's the status of this bill now and how do you, how do you see it progressing um, the, the bill has just had its first reading, which is essentially just being formally introduced to Parliament. Um, it could have its second reading, which is the main uh, initial debate, 
by the end of uh, by the middle of July, or more likely after the summer in in a, in September. Um, if if the the House of Lords agrees to the bill and allows it to go forward, it will then move to the next stage, which is a committee stage, and then there would be a third reading, which is the final debate and consideration and a vote. And then, obviously, if the if the Lords passed the bill, then it would go to the Commons and go through the same process in the Commons. Mm -hmm. So we could potentially have um, this on the statute books by the end of the year, early next year. And of course, the other factor in this is that the British Medical Association is going to be considering its position in September as well. So the two right. are dovetailing together. Right. And how can people follow what you do, Gordon and, and Merv and Nikki as well, actually? But I'll go to you, Gordon, first. Uh, well, one thing is you can obviously check out our website, which is carenotkilling.org.uk, or in Scotland we have one, which is carenotkilling.scot. Um, but we we also have, um, you know, regular emails we send out, we put uh, messages out on social media, etc. So, you know, if people want to sign up to our, our mailing list, either on, on either of those two websites, um, then we can keep in touch with them on a regular basis. Carenotkilling.co.uk, was it? Carenotkilling.co.uk or carenotkilling.scot. Brilliant. And Mervyn, Nikki, can we follow? Can people follow what you're doing? Um, yeah, I mean, we've 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 had a strange year really this year because because Nick was poorly last year, so it's been a strange year. So we've been very very quiet. Um, but we do have a website, um, at the distantvoices.co.uk. But can I just dot just dog? There's just there's just I'll double check that and make sure you've got it, Tim. But um, just as a, 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 a very quick final thought, we, we keep talking, we keep hearing about people dying with dignity. And I think that it's time really that we started to care for people with dignity, mm. because I think at the moment, the the woeful state of, of, yeah. of community care really needs addressing. And I think that it really should be very much about trying to make sure that people are living with dig in dignity and being looked after properly. And I suppose yeah. it really feels that would be an important place to be putting pressure on our politicians to make those changes to fix yeah. to fix the current state of care, really. Yeah, we haven't talked about palliative care, but uh, but I think we've run out of time now. But it's a very important point and, uh, and one we could talk about another time, perhaps. But listen, thank you, all three of you. Uh, very much uh, for joining us today and sharing your expertise and your passion and your story um, in this. And thank you for those of you watching as well. Um, hope you found it as informative and challenging and eye-opening as I did. And uh, do keep in touch with that. Do follow these organisations organizations, and do be active in campaigning for this important issue because we don't want to become a culture of death, which is where it goes uh, once we start legalising this. Thank you for watching. And uh, look forward to catching up with you again. Do follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and connect with our emails on chrisconcern.com. Thank you very much.